Well, as probably a lot of you know, um, we've got a church mission coming up at the end of February this year entitled Legacy. And across a fortnight, there are going to be many events that are basically designed to appeal to lots of different people, from tours of art treasures around Oxford to drama, and from gospel music to a fried breakfast. Um, and as a church family at Modern Oak, we want to encourage one another to make the most of those events by inviting friends along to maybe one or two of those events so they can hear what Christians believe is the greatest message anyone can hear about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's come into the world to do, to forgive and transform fallen, broken people like you and like me. But as legacy approaches, and perhaps you consider who you might be able to invite along to one of those events, I want to ask us all a question this morning. And it's quite an important question in today's world. It basically is, what qualifies you to tell someone about Jesus? See, if you're a Christian here this morning, what is it that qualifies you to talk about Jesus to your friends and your family? Why is it that we believe as Christians that once we begin to follow Jesus for ourselves, then it is right for us to encourage and urge others to follow him too? Because if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is maybe one of the mysteries of Christianity for you. I mean, again, Christians seem like nice people. They seem generally quite loving, gentle, but they do insist on forcing their views on other people. And perhaps that is something that has been a stumbling block for you. See, in a pluralist world, it's a deeply offensive and difficult thing to tell someone else, I believe in this and I really would urge you to believe it too. I follow this way of living, this person, and I think you should follow him too. See, evangelism is all too easily portrayed by the secular world as Christians forcing their beliefs on other people. So why is that a perception that Christians are willing to risk? Why, in spite of frustrations and setbacks and personal weakness, do Christians insist on sharing their faith? See, I've just mentioned personal weakness. And I would guess that there aren't really many Christians here today who haven't lost their nerve in a conversation in wanting to tell someone about Jesus. There have been times for all of us when a clear opportunity has arisen, when we could tell someone about what we believe about an issue, what we believe about Jesus, and yet we've, we've let that opportunity just sail by. We haven't taken it. And the thing is, we've all messed up in this area. And for some of us, the very mention of evangelism just evokes a sense of personal failure, of fear, and the memory of missed opportunities. So having acknowledged that it's unfashionable and it's also really difficult, then the question remains, what qualifies us to tell others about Jesus? Well, I want us to see this morning that Acts chapter 9 has something to say to us on that question. Through the account of Saul's conversion, I want us to see that the only qualification we have to tell others about Jesus is that we ourselves have experienced Jesus' grace and mercy in our lives, and so we long for others to experience that grace and mercy in theirs. It's basically as simple as that. We've experienced grace and mercy from Jesus. We want others to experience the same. And we've been looking at this book of Acts over the last few weeks, partly as a follow-up to our autumn 
series on the Gospel of Luke. You know, Acts is self-consciously written as a sequel to that account of Jesus' life, written by Luke as well. And partly we're looking at Acts to challenge and encourage us as we see the early Christians obeying Jesus' great commission and sharing their faith with the outside world. But the thing is, the book of Acts can be a dangerous book. And the problem comes with our tendency to read about the early Christians described in Acts and to focus all our attention on them. We can very quickly begin to regard them, the early Christians, as somehow superhuman, larger than life, free from any struggles. And there have been times in my own life when I've read this book of Acts, I've seen the early Christians changing the world through the gospel of Jesus, and I've come away thinking that, well, it must have somehow been easier for them. Some of the early Christians didn't struggle with personal weakness or with doubt the way I do. They didn't get scared the way I get scared. They didn't worry about what other people think of them the way I worry about what other people think of me. See, we've entitled this series on Acts Revolutionary Lives, and rightly so, because the early Christians had a massive impact on the world 2,000 years ago. The spread of the Christian gospel did revolutionise things. But the mistake we can fall into is to think that the book of Acts is just about the early Christians. So let me just remind you this morning that it isn't. The book of Acts is all about what the risen Lord Jesus did through those early Christians. It's not that the early Christians had some sort of secret that we should look for. It's that they were being used by Jesus. And the same Jesus can use us in powerful ways today. So as we come to Acts chapter 9 in our series, this is a chapter that is just so striking and dramatic that, again, we can end up focusing exclusively on Saul. And then how we might measure up to him in our own experience, our own conversion maybe, our own coming to faith. And as a younger Christian, I remember reading this chapter and thinking, I just really wish I had had a dramatic conversion like Saul. Then I would have the courage to live for Jesus. I could tell people this great story about meeting Jesus in this dramatic way. Um, Unfortunately, I was brought up in a Christian family and first came to faith about the age of seven. So my my conversion is a pretty tragic one of of being very young and following Jesus. Not, Not tragic at all, actually. But again, when I was younger... I would desperately try and think, well, what sins did I commit before the age of seven? Surely there's some sordid secret in my past that I can tell people about to make me look more dramatic as a Christian. See, my problem was, I wanted the story of how I came to trust in Jesus to be about me rather than about Jesus. And there will be people here this morning who have a far more dramatic account of how Jesus intervened in their lives and brought them to a relationship with himself. But for all of us, no matter how we may have come to faith if we're Christians, we need to see that actually the story of our conversion is about Jesus and about what he has done in our lives. That's the truth for us and it's true for Saul as well in Acts 9. This chapter is not ultimately about Saul. It's about Jesus and what Jesus did in Saul's life. So let's look at Acts 9. nine, nine. Well, last week, we were looking at Acts chapter 7, if you want to sort of glance back to that. And that was the trial and execution of Stephen. 
He was the first of the early Christians to be put to death for his faith. And at the end of Acts 7, Luke introduces us almost casually to one of the people who want Stephen dead in Acts 7. As Stephen is being stoned to death, in verse 58, we read that those stoning him laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When we first meet Saul, he is looking after the coats of Stephen's murderers. Stephen, described in Acts 6 as a man full of God's grace and power, is being murdered. And this young man, Saul, thinks that is great news. Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul was there, giving approval to Stephen's death. See, when we first meet Saul, it is before he has met Jesus, and he is self-consciously an enemy of Jesus, and an enemy of Jesus' followers. And then in Acts 8, after Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And Saul, we read, is right at the heart of it. 8 verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from home to home, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And then his persecution of Christians continues into Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And the language Luke uses to describe Saul's hatred of the early Christians here likens him to a wild animal. And the word translated destroy in chapter 8 verse 3 is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Psalm 80 verse 13 to describe a wild boar destroying a vineyard. See, Saul's likened to a wild animal here, angrily savaging the Christians. And then in 9 verse 1, it's as if every breath that Saul takes is for the purpose of murdering Christians. His hatred for them is that fierce. And it's to that end, murdering Christians, that Saul went to the high priest and asked for permission to hunt down any belonging to the way in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial and probably a similar fate to that of Stephen. See, Luke leaves us in no doubt about Saul here. He hated the early church, and he hated their message about Jesus Christ. And we need to be clear today that there will always be those who hate Christians, and who hate the message of Jesus Christ. So even as we prepare for the legacy even as the students among us prepare for the OIQ mission and the Brooks mission in February, we need to acknowledge that there will be some people who we will meet who, like Saul, will hate what it is we have to say. See, as Christians, we have to make every effort to be gracious and loving and respectful as we share our faith. We mustn't manipulate people. We mustn't be overly harsh with them in challenging them of their need to trust Jesus. But even after the work we do, to be gentle and respectful. There will be people who will reject the hope that we have. And they may also reject us as well. See, Christians don't need to go out looking for opposition. Opposition will come if we're living for Jesus. And that's because if we're Christians, we are actually in a war. We even sang a song this morning about that. And the opposition we face, our enemy in that war, isn't ultimately our friends or our family members who don't trust in Jesus. 
See, Ephesians 6 reminds us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, Christians are in a spiritual war zone every single day. And the rejection some of us have faced in our efforts to tell people about Jesus, as well as the struggle we experience in even telling people in the first place, is a result of that war, is a result of our enemies, the devil and his forces, trying to undermine us, trying to rob us of our confidence, trying to keep our friends blinded, because the devil does not want a single person to trust in Jesus. And that opposition is usually very subtle in the way it plays out in our lives. As in Acts 9, it sometimes comes from those in authority over us. So here with Saul, he had the high priest's permission to go to Damascus. Saul was an, was an instrument of authority here. And today Christians may experience opposition from their employers, from government policy, from those to put above them in this world. Sometimes in the form of subtle mockery, sometimes in outright hostility. But that is one way that opposition can face us. It may come from those closest to us. Okay, I've already mentioned friends, family members. We just don't want to know. And that can be particularly painful when it's someone we really love and care about who just refuses to ever listen to us. But if we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, if we want to tell people about Jesus, then we need to be ready that opposition is going to come just as it came to Stephen and just as it came to all the early Christians. We need to be prepared for that and we also need to pray that we would respond to that opposition as Stephen did in Acts 7. Stephen was faithful to Christ. He challenged his hearers with the truth of who Jesus was. But then, as they rejected him, as they were killing him, he prayed for them. In Acts 7 verse 60, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. See, Stephen was gracious and he prayed for those who opposed him. And little did he know that God was going to answer that prayer in a remarkable way. That one of those men present there at his death would very quickly meet Jesus for himself and be transformed by him. So we see from Acts 8 and 9 that Saul was an enemy of Jesus. And before we move on, I want us to see a really big irony here that Luke wants us to see, I think. Back in chapter 8, look at the result of the scattering of Christians from Jerusalem in the face of Saul's fierce persecution. That's in verse 4. It says, They fled from Saul into Judea and Samaria, and they preached the word wherever they went. Do you see what the irony is here? The great irony of Acts 8 is that Saul, that great enemy of the early Christians and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is actually responsible for the spread of the gospel into Samaria. See, in obedience to Jesus' commission, the disciples are now going out into Judea and Samaria and telling others about Jesus. They're no longer stuck in Jerusalem because Saul has driven them out. See, even as a violent enemy of Jesus, Saul played a vital role in the spread of the gospel. So by the end of Acts 9, it has reached the Samaritans and even an Ethiopian. See, I wonder, somebody's looking at Acts 8, if Saul, later in life, when he was the Apostle Paul, 
would have looked at Luke's account here. And he might have smiled, actually. He saw that even as an enemy of Jesus, even before he knew Jesus himself, Jesus had been using him to spread the gospel about himself, to send people into all the world to tell about him. You see, opposition will come. But sometimes God can even use that opposition to open the way for others to hear about Jesus. But back to Acts 9 then, and Saul is on his way to Damascus in verse 2. No doubt his hatred of the early Christians is being fueled on by this report that the Samaritans are now believing the gospel. Again, the hated Samaritans that Saul would have nothing to do with are being accepted by the Christians in Acts 8. So Saul is determined to do everything in his power to stop the spread of this message of Jesus Christ. But then, in verse 3, Jesus is no longer content to work through Saul's persecution. And now, he wants to rescue Saul himself. Just read verses 3 to 6. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. See, these are famous verses for a lot of us, but I don't want us to miss their significance because of that. See, what is happening in verse 3 is an intervention. Jesus is intervening in Saul's life here. Jesus is stepping in and taking hold of Saul. And Jesus will not let him go until Saul has been rescued from his life of hatred and sin. See, this meeting on the Damascus Road, it can't be described as Saul deciding to follow Jesus. As Saul weighing up the evidence and thinking, yeah, I think I'll probably give this Christian life a shot. It's not described as him praying a prayer that then Jesus will come into his life. See, that's not the description here. See, this is Jesus confronting Saul. Jesus, in his sovereign grace, calling Saul and revealing his character to Saul. This is Jesus rescuing Saul when Saul didn't even know he needed to be rescued. See, in Acts 9, Jesus does not stand at the door and knock. Jesus kicks the door down to get hold of Saul and to bring him into that relationship with him. Now, it seems clear um, from the two later accounts of Saul's conversion in Acts. So Saul tells the story again in Acts 22 and 26 that Saul had been struggling for quite some time against recognising Jesus as the Son of God. Acts 26 verse 14 records Jesus' words to Saul. Jesus said to him, It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Which suggests that Saul was fighting a growing sense within him at this point that maybe the Christians he hated so much were right. Maybe Jesus really was the long-awaited Messiah. See, some commentators suggest Saul may have heard Jesus personally when Saul was in Jerusalem near the end of Jesus' life. And certainly the witness of Stephen would have had a massive impact on Saul. Saul was there when Stephen was facing his, his, his persecutors and his face, Acts 6 tells us, was like that of an angel. So that must have made an impact on Saul. But even as you recognise that, 
even as he recognized that things were going on in Saul's life that were perhaps gradually bringing him closer to Jesus. The emphasis of Acts 9 is clear. Saul came to put his trust in Jesus because Jesus stepped in personally to rescue Saul. And in Acts 9, we can see the risen Jesus more visibly active than anywhere else in the book of Acts. Jesus appears to Saul. He speaks to Saul. He speaks to Ananias later on. And partly this is down to the unique aspects of Saul's conversion. See, after all, Saul is being called by God here to be an apostle. And again, we are not called to be apostles. See, Jesus' appearance to Saul on the road to Damascus is described later on in, in the New Testament as one of Jesus' actual resurrection appearances. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul writes, Last of all, Jesus appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So there are very unique aspects in this chapter of Saul's conversion. But I want us to see also that in a very real way, the role Jesus plays in Saul's conversion is the role he plays in every person's coming to faith. It's just that in Acts 9, we see him clearly at work. In most people's experience, it's only after the fact that we recognise, yes, that was Jesus doing that. That was Jesus at work in my life. So how does Jesus bring Saul into a new life of following him. Well, first of all, Saul is humbled by Jesus. Again, upon encountering Jesus, Saul, in verse 4, fell to the ground and he stayed there as Jesus spoke to him. See, this proud and angry man is humbled by Jesus. He is forced to his knees. When we first meet Saul, he is standing proudly at Stephen's execution with the coats at his feet. But here, in verse 4, he is forced to the ground, to his knees, to acknowledge that Jesus is the one in charge, not him. And then secondly, Saul is accused by Jesus. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus challenges Saul with the facts of his life. See, Saul thought he was doing God's will in persecuting the early Christians. But in reality, he was guilty of persecuting Christ, the Son of God. And that was a terrible sin to be guilty of. And then finally, Saul is forgiven by Jesus. And he's left in awe at that forgiveness. So you'll notice that Jesus doesn't explicitly say, I forgive you, Saul, here. But what he does say to Saul It's for him to go into the city, verse 6, and you will be told what to do. See what that means? That means Saul's old life is now over. Instead of opposing Jesus, Saul is now going to follow Jesus. Jesus has forgiven Saul for his persecution of Christians and he is giving Saul a fresh start here. And Saul's response is one of all. He's led by the hand into Damascus and he spends three days there in blindness, fasting and praying, verse 11 tells us, and trying to grasp just what happened to him on the road. See, why has the risen Jesus chosen to appear to him and reveal the truth of the gospel to him? 
See, Saul is amazed that Jesus should intervene in his life after all that Saul has done. He fasts and prays here because he cannot understand why Jesus would would choose to be gracious to him. Why Jesus would rescue him of all people. See, Saul is forgiven here and he's left in awe at that forgiveness. And in these three ways, Saul's conversion is a picture of every Christian's conversion. The details may be less dramatic, but the central elements are there. See, part of our response to God must be one of humility. Putting our trust in Jesus is an admission that I'm not God. I'm not the one in control. That we need to humble ourselves before the living God and begin to follow him instead of ourselves. And for many of us, like Saul, that humbling is a painful experience. It's not easy to admit how far short we have fallen. It's not easy to admit our pride and our foolishness. But humbling ourselves before Jesus is necessary, both at the point of our beginning our walk with him, and then repeatedly throughout our Christian life. And like Saul also, we stand accused by Jesus. See, we may not have been involved in the arrest and execution of Christians before coming to Christ, but every single one of us stands guilty before God because we have failed to love God the way we should and to love our neighbour the way we should. And that is to feel the greatest commandment that Jesus has set us. See, a friend of mine once was asked by someone what was the worst sin he'd ever committed. I think the question was sort of wanting a bit of sort of juicy detail or sordid story from a friend's past. But my friend replied that the worst sin he had ever committed was ignoring Jesus and failing to worship him. I think the question was a bit disappointed by that one. But you see, ignoring Jesus and failing to worship him is a sin that every single human being in this world is guilty of. We all stand accused by Jesus of that. Whether we've consciously rejected him like Saul did, or whether we've just lived our lives just ignoring him, not ever thinking of him. And that is the sinful attitude we all need Jesus to forgive in us if we're to come to trust in him. But again, the great news of the gospel is, as with Saul, Jesus is willing to forgive us. And when we truly understand that, our only response can be and must be one of awe at Jesus' grace and mercy shown to us. See, when you look at the rest of Acts, and you look at all the letters that Saul, later Paul, wrote to Christians, I'm struck by the fact that Saul never forgot that sense of awe at Jesus' grace and forgiveness shown towards him. And you see, if we forget that we are saved only because of Jesus' grace towards us, only because we have a merciful God, then we will be totally unable to tell others about Jesus. We will judge other people. We will say, well, I'm a Christian because I am more spiritually aware, or I'm more humble, or I'm just more knowledgeable of these things. See, Saul knew the only reason he was rescued was because Jesus chose to rescue him. 
And the only thing that qualifies us as Christians is that Jesus was willing to forgive us our sin. So we began this morning with the question, what qualifies us to tell others about Jesus? It's the same qualification. It is that we have received grace and mercy from Jesus. And we know that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven and receive that mercy and forgiveness as well. See, that's how Saul saw his own conversion. Some words from 1 Timothy. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, again, in one sense, that's uniquely applicable to Saul. His conversion in Acts 9 should encourage us that if Jesus is able to save Saul, he's able to save anyone. But in another sense, we are all like Saul here. See, as we pray for our friends and our family who don't know Jesus, we need to recognise, again, we did not come to faith because of anything in ourselves. We came to faith because Jesus is gracious. And it's on that ground that we can pray for our friends and our loved ones and the people around us. See, Jesus loves to show mercy. And that's why we can approach him with confidence and praying for those we know. Again, we need to realise not everyone we pray for will become a Christian. The Bible does never promise that to us. But in Acts 9, we can see that Jesus is the one we need to pray to. We don't have to browbeat our friends into submission. We don't have to just keep talking at them even when they just don't want to listen. What we need to do is to pray that Jesus would intervene in their lives. That he would humble them as he humbled us. That he would convict them of their sin as he convicted us and then he would forgive them and transform them as by his grace he has forgiven and transformed every Christian sitting here this morning. So before we leave Acts 9, there are two more things we need to see very briefly about how Jesus brings Saul into this new relationship with himself. First of all, Jesus does not leave Saul on his own. Jesus calls Saul into his family. That's verses 10 to 19. If you glance down verses 10 to 16, Jesus calls another Christian who lives in Damascus, a man called Ananias, to welcome Saul into the Christian community there. And again, we see that Ananias is understandably reluctant to do that. He knows all about Saul. Saul's record goes way ahead of him. And he cannot believe at first that Saul, the enemy of Christians, has actually come to faith himself. But the Lord persuades him, and Ananias goes to Saul. Let's read verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, some commentators have called Ananias one of the unsung heroes in Acts. And I hope we can see why here. Because he is obedient to Jesus and he is courageous in going to meet Saul and he's also willing to place his hand on Saul 
and call him a brother. Again, try to imagine the effect this would have had on Saul. Maybe Ananias knew Christians personally who had been locked up or even killed due to Saul's work. And again, for Saul, another Christian welcoming him as a brother after all the things he had done, after all the cruelty he had inflicted on Christians, that would have been just an awesome witness to the power of the Lord he has just met on the road to Damascus. See, Ananias knew that Jesus had forgiven Saul. And that was good enough for Ananias to forgive Saul. See, Ananias showed love and acceptance towards Saul at a time when Saul was probably wrestling with huge feelings of guilt and regret about his past. And I can imagine that Saul never forgot Ananias' kindness to him. He certainly mentions Ananias in his later accounts of his conversion. And in a similar way, we are all called to be like Ananias in forgiving and accepting one another. See again, God has blessed us in recent months with new people coming in to the life of the church family. And it is wonderful to have so many new people. Some of whom have recently come to faith. Others have known Jesus for a long time. But again, are we welcoming them? Are we treating them as brothers and sisters? If you've been here for a while at Modern Road, and a while at Modern Road means about six months, I think. If you've been here for a while, welcome other people. Welcome them because they are family. If they are following Jesus, they are a brother and they are a sister. And they need that welcome. Because through that welcome, Jesus is loving them and providing for them here in Oxford. So again, how willing are we to take a risk to go over to someone we don't know? Ananias, his risk was Saul might be faking it and might kill him. Our risk is just that it's a bit uncomfortable sometimes. We don't quite know what to say. But again, let's just pray that we would welcome one another. Maybe even this morning, if someone you don't know is here, go over and say hello and welcome them as a brother or sister. So finally then, we've seen that Saul is an enemy of Jesus. Then we saw that Jesus intervened in his life. And we've seen that Jesus welcomed Saul into his family through Ananias. And then finally in Acts 9, Jesus shows Saul the reason why he's rescued him. See, Jesus sends Saul out into the world. I'm just going to read from verse 19b. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. See, the thing that strikes me about these verses is that Saul begins his mission immediately after recovering from his fasting. He doesn't wait for a long period of training. And he undoubtedly had lots of things to learn in his life. But Saul wanted to tell others about Jesus immediately. See, he suffered setbacks here. Later on in this chapter, we see that there's opposition from the Jewish religious leaders, opposition from his old friends, as he tells others about Jesus. There's mistrust from other Christians who can't quite believe that Jesus has changed Saul. But you see, Saul realised 
he had received this grace and mercy from Jesus for a purpose. And that purpose was to show that grace and mercy to others, to lead others to Jesus, so Jesus could transform them also. See, Saul stayed in Damascus and in the region of Arabia for about three years before heading to Jerusalem. See, years are passing in these verses. Saul has things to learn from Jesus and from other Christians here. And Jesus preparing Saul for a life of service to himself. But even as he's being prepared for service, even as he's looking to the future, Saul doesn't want to waste the present. He wants to use it to tell people about this awesome God he has met. This awesome God who has rescued him. And that's our calling too. Sometimes we can look to the future and think things will be easier then. Work will be less stressful. I'll be able to really get stuck in then. The kids will have grown up or have left home. I'll be retired. I'll be married. I'll have left university. There's so many reasons why we can justify to ourselves I don't really need to go serving Jesus right now. The time just isn't right. Again, Saul's circumstances here were not ideal. He was facing mistrust and opposition, but he still wanted to obey Jesus and to tell others about him. And that's our calling this morning as well. So what qualifies us to tell others about Jesus? Only his grace and his mercy towards us. And once we've received that, we are actually ready to share Jesus with people around us. And Jesus goes ahead of us to open the way for people who will respond and whom he wants to transform the lives of. I'm just going to finish with some words from the Apostle Paul, who Saul later became, urging us to be used by Jesus in this way. Some words from 2 Corinthians 5. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's just pray together. Let's pray.